Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military, and specialty areas. We address the question, what is military psychology, and answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. The Intro to Military Psychology podcast is an official podcast by the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association. It does not represent the position of the American Psychological Association or any of its other divisions or subunits. The contents, views, or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Uniformed Service University, Department of the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. Welcome to another episode of Intro to Military Psychology. Welcome. And again, my name is Keen, and here with me, my co-host, Hey, Ethan, what's going on, guys? Yep. And today we're going to talk about military psychology again. And in the context of, in that context, you know, how people can do advocacy. And with us, we have a wonderful superstar in, in the Navy, Dr. Nick Grant. Hello, Nick. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming, Nick. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Nick has done a whole lot of work in terms of policy and advocating for change both in and outside of the military. And I, today we're just going to talk to him and, and learn his efforts on that front and how to apply that in military psychology. So, so we always ask our speakers, our guests, to talk about their background. So Nick, if you want to just tell us you know, a little bit about your background, your training, and what led you to military psychology. Sure. This will probably be the first of many long stories, but uh, <laughs> I am a first-generation college student, so I didn't really... I start there because I didn't really know what I was doing as I was working through the academic process. I started at community college and I made my way through undergrad, did a terminal master's degree, got interested in research and decided to pursue a doctorate degree. I went to Palo Alto University where I completed my PhD in clinical psychology. While I was there, I kind of dual focused, one clinically in health psychology and research-wise in LGBTQ psychology. It was the first lab or one of the first labs in the country that had a focus in that area. So I was really excited to do some pretty like, you know, new novel stuff in the research front. I actually had a loss of a parent midway through my graduate program, which was a pretty major life event. And I took a leave of absence for a year before coming back. I always tell people the first three years of graduate school, I was kind of phoning it in and making my way through again, figuring it out, kind of modeling myself after my peers. But after mm -hmm. my mom passed away, I came back and I was really ready to get to business. So if you knew me in graduate school, the first three years versus the second three years, very, very different approach. But I was really motivated and I wanted to make my way through and see what kind of impact I could have as a psychologist. Can I cut you off real quick? Uh, please, please. Tell us more about what research got you hooked and what drew you into that? It sounds like you started getting into some labs in, in graduate school. So tell us a little bit more about your research interests. Absolutely. So when I did my terminal master's degree, you know, you get like a little taste of research. You're really beginning to understand right. uh, how to read it even. Um, right. <laughs> so we did what was called kind of like the master's thesis 
was called an integrative paper for, so, uh, you know, a very somewhat comprehensive literature review. Mm-hmm. And I focused mine on the utilization of motivational interviewing with gay men in order to increase treatment adherence to HIV medication. Mm-hmm. Kind of the initial approach or experience of looking at different items, variables that I was found interesting in my training and bringing them together to answer a question or look at a question, I should say, that was of interest to mine, really kind of sparked my interest in how much further could I take this? Like, what else could I do and how could I develop along that pathway? That's why I decided to pursue a PhD at that time. That was like really the major variable there. Mm-hmm. And then my research experience working in the LGBTQ lab, that was called CLEAR. So it was the Center for LGBTQ Evidence-Based Applied Research. I think I got all the letters there. <laughs> Sounds like a cool lab. Yeah. It, yeah. it was really cool because it was really pro- focused on informing program development and developing culturally competent training for individuals or clinicians working with LGBTQ individuals. So it's a little right. bit different, I think, in the traditional sense where we weren't doing like tons and tons of studies, but we were pulling information and collecting research across different areas in order to inform how we would develop programs. So I always, I feel like when I walk into a, a research or a conference or anywhere where we're presenting research, I've got really great program development and I can inform those processes pretty well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we talk about that more comprehensive statistical analysis and stuff, I'm a little <laughs> lost, but um, I think that's par for the course. I just say I, I forgot it because I learned it all so long ago. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you also highlight this idea that people have, like, you know, if your people's idea of research means that, okay, I give this mice or, you know, this rat, this medication, and this is going to happen, which research research can be also for program implementation and also for evaluation purposes. And part of what you do in, in, on that front also informs your work currently as a, as a psychologist and also your role in, in the larger community. So yeah, you know, that's just, you know, fascinating and, and to fresh perspective, because I, I think uh, for a lot of people, the general impression of research is just like what I just described, you know, statistics and all that, and not necessarily, you know, how to inform policy change and all that. Totally. I mean, I think my life experience thus far is about bringing all the pieces together to make things happen, like really like seeing what, what I've learned so far, what opportunities I've had, and then using those to kind of find what's interesting to me, which is how I got involved in policy a little bit later on. Right. The last piece for the research lab, I would say, is we developed and implemented subspecialty clinic within our school's training clinic, specifically for serving the LGBTQ population on the peninsula. So I went to school in Palo Alto, and I lived in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which is where my professor also lived. So San Francisco is pretty beautiful covered. Place. Yes. Yeah. Very, very beautiful <laughs> and very expensive. But... Um, <laughs> We were trying to expand services in the region, in that area, for, for sexual yeah. and gender minorities. So really focused on getting that clinic opened up. So we did that. We were able to do that. So I was very fortunate since I came in with a master's degree. I was able to kind of start in my research lab first year rather than second year, which was more traditional for that program, hmm. and just get my hands like in, in into a bunch of things. I will say I learned along the way, and I think it was a lifelong lesson, you know, monitoring what you put on your plate or take on. But back in the day, I would get involved in as much as possible, which I think was a a little bit overwhelming, but I learned that lesson. It's a common experience of graduate students, I think. Yep. I was about Absolutely. to say, that's graduate school. You know, you just got to do everything all at the same time with working 48 hours within 24 hours. Well, I mean, graduate school is the time to do it, right? It's a smorgasbord of opportunity. And, and, mm-hmm. and it sounds like, Nick, you were really playing around with 
you know, what your interests were and trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do with this career? And, you know, where is it going to take me? And you were using these opportunities as ways to fuel your future. Absolutely. And I will say my clinical training in graduate school is really what got me motivated to start looking at military psychology. So I had done, this was a number of years ago, but I'd done in graduate school that specialty clinic we opened up. And then I spent a year training at a methadone clinic in the Tenderloin area of San Francisco. It's a really great experience. And then I had my leave of absence. And then when I came back, I actually started working at the VA during neuropsychology. So like a very varied, lots of different things, trying to figure it out. You've done it all. Yeah. Trying to see how it all fits together. I had always had the interest in health psychology, so kind of a common thread. And I, I definitely view the field of clinical like is really integrating health psychology throughout many programs and in much of the work we do, especially in the military. But mm-hmm. that exposure to working with the veteran population, and then I actually went from that to a crisis center, so like all these pieces on top of each other, had me originally look at pursuing the clinical psychology internship program, specifically with the Navy at that time. I, however, decided I didn't even apply. I ended up not applying. I spent, I did quite a bit. I did informational interviews, attended some seminars, but decided not to apply. Again, circling back to being a first-gen student, I don't think I was ready for the commitment at that point, but I was, and again, still trying to figure out all the things that I wanted to try out. So I ended up matching. I was very, very fortunate because I matched at my first choice internship and I went to Tulane School of Medicine. Mm My position was specifically focused in behavioral medicine, so health psychology, and I got to live in New Orleans. So that was a very bad, yeah, (laughs) a very fun experience, a great training environment, and I always say a very fattening year um, for multiple (laughs) reasons. So I spent a year down there training in behavioral medicine. Spent a quarter of my time at a comprehensive cancer center, a quarter of my time in an abdominal transplant unit, and then half my time at a college counseling center. So again, that generalist model, but bringing in all those pieces together. I will say that I was really interested in finishing my degree. I mean, that was my goal at that point. And of course, at internship, there was a lot of pressure for postdocs. So I was following the kind of cookie cutter pathway in that regard to becoming licensed. And then I was fortunate again, I'm going to use that word a lot today, I think, uh, (laughs) to match at my first choice postdoc. And I came to San Diego, where I'm currently located, and I did the LGBTQ mental health VA postdoc. I believe there are seven of these positions across seven different VAs around the country, especially program that the National VA Center runs, the LGBT Center runs, or program rather. And it was really exciting because San Diego is a flagship VA. And the the first postdoc in this position was the year before and happened to be a really good friend of mine from grad school out of the same research lab. And Mm -hmm. so I got to continue doing the program development and expansion of services that he was doing while essentially running my own program, being the sole clinician and getting really involved in the administrative side of things, which is where I would say my advocacy spark like really ignited and took me forward. So it was a fantastic year. I I always tell everybody postdoc for me was the most professionally formative year. I really Mm -hmm. leaned into and started to trust myself more as being an autonomous clinician. I got really great training based on the supervisors I had. And then I think it prepared me for licensure and independent practice. Wow. I'm just thinking how, I don't know if anybody go to graduate school and get a uh, clinical psychology graduate degree and thinking that my next move is going to be a policy change and all that. 
I think uh, most of us who kind of enter into this graduate pathway, you know, so to speak, always imagine that the next thing for us is going to be a therapist. And I wonder, you know, you said you had that spark for for policy and being a part of the administrative, you know, work. I wonder if you would share a little bit more details, you know, what led you into that mindset and into that pathway? Yeah, absolutely. So the unique position, my postdoc cohort was rather large. I want to say there were 12 of us. And then there were the research postdocs too. So it was really closer to 20. Um, But it was a really cool group. I still have many friends from that cohort year. But the LGBTQ position and how it was kind of established at the San Diego VA was really unique in the sense that like I was developing and running my own program. The other postdocs were definitely leading within their their areas of specialty, but I was getting to like really design, set up, not only like schedule and all that, that less fun administrative stuff, but put it together. And because of that, I had to have a significantly larger amount of contact with the leadership within the mental health department, I think is what they are within the VA, Mm. and really get like really go and like advocate for my patients, for my programs, present strong policy and research rationalizations for why the decisions that I was making for the programs and patients should be supported. It's all about a negotiation and using the research base and using not only at the local level, but like what the national office is saying and what we're seeing within the larger field of LGBTQ psychology as well. Pulling all those pieces together and communicating those. I would say it was my first experience in learning kind of the policy translation piece, which I'll talk a bit more about in a minute. But that's where I saw just, I don't want to say the power differential, but where I felt like I was able to make a systems level change for the patient. Mm -hmm. And that was really my focus. Like I love clinical work. I love patient care, but I was getting to do this other area where I thought I had a strong foundation and use my skills in order to communicate with the leadership again, to get to ask for, I shouldn't say get, but to ask for the things I wanted to best support them. Of course, some things they were more willing to give versus others, but it was a really, really great experience in that that was the year that I applied to become an APA congressional fellow. And Mm. that like, this is the thread and I'll kind of go through my experience and then share the thread. Hopefully that makes sense. But during postdoc year, I had known about the fellowship for a number of years because while I was in my graduate training, I co-enrolled in an LGBTQ health policy and practice graduate certificate program at George Washington University. And my policy instructor, so I had a graduate level course in public policy, was a social psychologist who had been an APA congressional fellow like a decade before. So I'd known about the program for three years. It came across a listserv, like I wasn't tracking it, like I, I didn't I thought it was interesting. It wasn't something I was like definitely going to pursue. But that year, based on the experience in the VA, it came across one of the random listservs that I'm on. And I went to my mentor and said, my mentor at the VA, and said, you know, this is really interesting to me. What do you think? She is still a friend. And actually, she now that I'm in San Diego, I have more contact with her again because we're more local. But She said she had a supervisee who was a postdoc like two or three years prior apply. They didn't get selected, but she wanted me to connect with that individual in Mm -hmm. order to just learn more about like what the application process is like and what that individual had found out in their informational interviews about the actual fellowship. 
And that's kind of how the whole process got started. She connected me with this other individual. We set up, I think, a phone call. We exchanged a few emails, had a phone call. This led to phone calls with three or four other people. It's all about the network, <laughs> accessing the network. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I applied. And when I wrote my cover letter, my application for the Congressional Fellowship, I told them, like, this is my thread and this is how I view my pathway to this point. I was doing all that work in, at CLEAR in my research lab in, at Palo Alto University. And it was leading me towards my experience of starting in the VA as a practicum student in Palo Alto. And then my postdoc current experience where I was doing that program development directly related to my research lab with mm-hmm. the patient population I've spent years researching and working with, and then advocating with the leadership. So I was able to draw like how I learned over time in graduate school, direct clinical service, program level development, and then systems level implementation about policy. I actually, um, I shared a, a kind of a lesson about this in the transgender veterans group that I ran. It was very applicable to like how they access services, but explaining how policy gets pumped out how it gets translated by administrators, how it gets delivered to VA leadership, how it gets delivered to your clinician, and then how it finally reaches you. It was an upside down triangle. I'm sure it was ugly because I can't draw, but it was kind of my lesson, like my, my lesson for them in discussing about like how they access services and what that translational piece is across the process. Wow. So you got the position, it sounds like. I did. Again, very fortunate. I don't know if I'm like really good about writing about myself. I've been told a number of times that I'm very, I get very excited. So I think that I think I communicate that at least in my speaking and my writing. And so I was selected. I actually was, so I made it through the first round. Just like DC, you had to do a writing test. So we had to write a policy statement for it. Then I was selected to be a finalist. Back then we were still traveling. So I flew to DC for the interview. As I recall, call there were four finalists there's two positions and four finalists for each position and they called me at the end of the day and offered me the position and i remember the director at that time said you i was in the taxi leaving the hotel going back to the airport and said you don't have to answer right now like you take as much time as you need we need an answer within two weeks i go i don't need any time i'll take it (laughs) nice um so yeah it was really it was, it was a big step. And I also have to admit, I didn't truly know what I was getting myself into because I wasn't yeah. super clear on what the fellowship was going to include. Mm-hmm. So what did you find yourself getting into? So the APA Congressional Fellowship, and I'm going to connect this because I've recently learned about the, I want to say exactly same fellowship that is, a, that is available. And I believe across all the services, the Navy definitely has it. I'm pretty sure the Air Force has it as well. So they call it the Service Legislative Fellowship. You basically go to the Hill, you go to Congress, and you work in either a Senate, I'm sorry, either in the Senate or the House, and either a committee or personal office. And you are essentially a Hill staffer for that year. The way that the APA has it set up is you can select who or, or where you want to apply, and they have no, they have no say whatsoever um, because of all the laws around gifts and how that kind of plays out with giving things free to Congress or to, to politicians. They can have no say whatsoever in who you apply to. They will give you information about offices or what they know about personnel or issues that those offices are working on, but they don't have any say. So it's really free for you. For the services, you go and work out of their specific legislative office, and then they will hook you up if you're interested, I believe, in working in a committee or personal office. 
based on somebody who's working on issues related to your service. Uh, so for me, more specifically, I went out and I said there were three areas that I was most interested in working in. Military or veteran policy issues, LGBTQ issues, and healthcare issues, of course, of course, with a specific thought that I really wanted to work in something related to mental health. Mm-hmm. This was a number, wasn't that many, five years ago? I don't remember. But you go, you have like a two-week orientation, and then they have what is called nerd prom. There is some controversy of whether or not they should call it that, but I think they still call it that. Uh, there were 20-ish congressional fellows, because it's anybody with a doctoral level degree that has a research focus, so PhDs, and they're all from different sciences, many from like chemistry, biology, more of the quote-unquote hard sciences, and then I would say maybe a third from the quote-unquote soft sciences. And at Nerd Prom, the staffers from the offices who are looking for fellows, because again, you're free labor to them, and you come in with Mm -hmm. way more training and experience than their staff has, because the staff Mm -hmm. is paid such a, a lower salary range they don't get people generally with higher edu- uh, much higher education they still have people with higher education so nerd prom is the staffers coming in and it's just a free-for-all uh, just like any dc event there's wine and there's snacks and you do what you need to do and there's all this networking and business card trading i mean at least that's how it was back then mm-hmm. and i had they did give you a, a directory of all the offices that were familiar with the program, because the program is ran by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, are the ones who kind of like organize it, but you're sponsored by your professional homes. I was sponsored by APA. Mm -hmm. You get a book, the book, and they say, these people are people who are familiar with the AAAS program and want a fellow, and then it's basically maybe half a page entry with a few bullet points about what like subject area they're looking in, and then what the member's name is, their committee name is, and then what issues they're working on or like whatever that staffer er- specific area is. So I remember there were three offices that I was, I want to say most from what I knew at that time, I didn't know that much. But at that point, I, okay. there were three offices I really wanted to work in. And that was either Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, Senator Diane Feinstein from California, or Senator Tammy Baldwin. Now, Baldwin had not had a fellow in the past. So I went, quote unquote, off book and reached out to her staff and they said oh yeah like we'll definitely interview you and i went through so then you go and you have these 30 minute interviews and it's up to you to negotiate like your placement like you essentially just like accept where you're going to work the next year there's some Mm -hmm. formal pieces in place but nothing like graduate school there's no Mm -hmm. like match there's no like acceptance there's no cv your resume can only Mm -hmm. be one page so that was i remember that was actually really challenging for most of us who have had like graduate school experiences. And I, I would say I made it very far in the interview process with all three of those individuals. Senator Baldwin's staff told me that they weren't going to offer me a position. And that was because this was the transition year from our past administration, that they were expecting a different outcome from the election that, that resulted. And due to that, they didn't think they were going to have enough work across their military and LGBTQ portfolios, which is the areas I would have worked on in that office to keep me fully, mm-hmm. like gainfully employed, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I was sad, but I said, okay. I ultimately turned down an offer from Senator Feinstein's office just because it was healthcare only and there wasn't a significant area, there weren't a significant number of issues within healthcare that matched my interest area. Mm-hmm. And I accepted a position with Senator Gillibrand. So I spent my year working in her office and I will say I feel a little bit 
swindled because <laughs> they said, we'll let you work on all your interest areas. Mm. And so I was working across more portfolios than any of the other fellows in her office. So I worked primarily on her military policy portfolio, supporting the senator is a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee or SAF mm. and was the ranking member at the time because of the leadership in the Senate for the subcommittee on personnel. So that was like really the meat of my, or the broccoli of my um, <laughs> my focus for that area. And then I worked on the healthcare portfolio. I handled mental health, I handled a lot of areas, but mental health and cancer were my two big policy areas. And then there wasn't a lot of LGBTQ federal legislation going on, but that was just kind of my area. And another sub portfolio they threw at me. So it's a busy, a busy year. You're doing all sorts of policy work. Yes. That's quite impressive. What year were you on that? Were you completing that fellowship? So I, that was a great question. That was 2016 to 2017. So not quite five years ago. And, yeah. And at that time, you were not a uniformed psychologist. No, I was still a civilian. Okay. And I will say that's where I think I got my... Or, I don't know if orientation is the right word, but I got my greatest amount of exposure even beyond working as a clinician at the VA to the DOD and working with mm -hmm. the services, obviously in a different role. But mm. I didn't really know what all those shiny things on their uniforms stood for back then. <laughs> and what caught your attention to the DOD or being a psychologist in the military? So, um, as I said, I looked at it for internship before, decided it wasn't for me at that time. But this mm -hmm. year, my fellowship year working for Senator Gillibrand and primarily, like literally, I was primarily doing military policy. I think three, maybe halfway through the year, actually, I said, you know, this was an interest of mine. Let me start. Let me think about it again. And so that team was made up, the military legislative team for the senator was made up of the lead staffer, who was a civilian, a fellow from the State Department, a, a JAG from the Coast Guard, an Army veteran, and then we had a new staff member join us who was also an Army veteran. And so working with people who had served, working specifically on service specific policy and right. issues, I think it just like piqued my interest once again. And so it was definitely, it was less than halfway through the year. It was like by December and the fellowship started in September. So it was really quick in the year. I decided I wanted to start looking again about those possibilities, not mm -hmm. having gone through one of the training pipelines. Mm -hmm. And so I, when did I apply? I... <laughs> All the years kind of met once you're once you're done with school, all the years just start melting <laughs> together. Um, I decided it wasn't until the end of the fellowship that I decided I was going to start that I was going to apply. I took the time mm -hmm. during the fellowship to have conversations with active duty psychologists mm -hmm. to speak with some of my peers who I worked with there and had close relationships with just to get a sense of what the climate would be like, what the opportunity would look like, and mm -hmm. if it was really a good fit for me. At the time, I was in a, a serious relationship, and so that was a, a factor. Mm -hmm. And I decided at the end of the year, I was going to pursue applying. I wasn't really clear, and even now that I'm in, I'm still not really clear on what <laughs> that application <laughs> process looks like. Um, but I was, I said, I'm going to, 
I'm going to start the application process. In the meantime, I'm going to pursue some advocacy and policy-specific positions in D.C. because my partner and I were staying in D.C. And kind of true to, I guess, my worldview or approach to life, I said, whatever comes and is the best fit is kind of what I'll, I'll move forward with. Maybe I'll get mm-hmm. a, a one-year position doing policy, and that's how long it'll take to apply. So it was at the end of the year that I decided to apply. And then it was 18 months later that I actually commissioned. Oh, wow. That was a long time. Yeah. Well, so sorry to pull you away from talking about your work in the senator's office. I kind of wanted to just ask if you could reflect for a moment of, you know, what your greatest accomplishment in your eyes was from the work that you did on policy working with the senator's office. That is an easy answer, actually. So this work that I got to continue to do up until like as recently as last month. Oh, wow. So my last month in the office was August, if my years are correct, 2017. And that is when there was a social media announcement by the president that the transgender individuals would no longer be allowed to serve in the United mm-hmm. States military. During that time, since I was still a civilian and working in the office, I got to, I had, it was probably the most unique professional opportunity. And I feel like I've had quite a number of those, but the biggest one in my career to date. So I got to write the legislate, I got to write legislation that was first written as a resolution for the NDAA back then. And then due to the death of Senator McCain, that process moved a lot quicker that year than it traditionally does. So the legislation I wrote, then we developed into a standalone piece of legislation. And it focused specifically on protecting the rights of transgender Americas to serve or to continue and to continue serving. Mm-hmm. As a part of that process, I also got to do the only maybe not at this point, I, I, I'm not that familiar, but at that time, the first and only cultural competency training around transgender issues and identities in the United States Senate. And I got leadership, I got permission from the leadership in the senator's office and got to put this full day on training. And it wasn't required, but it was optional. And we had, we had a pretty good turnout from the staff that was able to attend. And it randomly kind of fell right around the time I had gone. I'd I'd planned a year, like right when I got to DC to go to Philadelphia to take a four-day training at the Transgender Training Institute, which is an amazing organization. And then I got to come back and pull from that experience because it was like literally within the same month and put this training on for the senator's staff. So that was hugely, hugely meaningful to me because again, it built upon everything that I kind of talked about earlier all my experiences, having, I think, a very strong foundation and the skill set to draw attention and move that work forward. And this is not the important part, but I was recognized by the APA for it the following year. I got a, a presidential citation for that work. Wow, that's incredible. Okay. Yeah, it was a real, and this was like literally like my last two weeks of fellowship. So it was, the timing oh, was just insane. Absolutely. And that policy, I'm sure, is still having an impact on service members today. So the policy was reintroduced for the next Congress as well. Mm. It had bipartisan support. So Senator Gillibrand was able to reach across the aisle and get support from her Republican colleagues. I'm going to add another story, not that I haven't told you 10 already, um, just because this is one of my favorite memories of the fellowship experience and like working in policy specifically. So prior to Senator McCain's passing, I got to draft a letter 
to sec the then Secretary of Defense Mattis, specifically uh, from the senator, right? Like every, all the work the staff does mm -hmm. is on behalf of the senator, specifically, basically asking the Secretary of Defense not to move forward, like calling this out as inappropriate and discriminatory. And I got to draw on all the research that we have, and really the majority of it does come from mental health around transgender identities and the fact that this is just this policy, a ban would be discriminatory. The memory, which is very, very powerful as it's even returning to me right now, is the you may remember when they were trying to overturn Obamacare in the Senate and mm -hmm. Senator McCain came in and was the final vote that prevented them from being able to do so with his like famous thumbs down like when he walked in. This was like 1.30 in the morning when this all happened, when that, the final vote took place. The memory that I have is of this letter. I mean, the not overturning Obamacare is also a memory, but in the context of things. The way that these letters, as anything in the military as well, in the government, everything's highly formatted, right? Like the bullet point needs to be the right size and the right shape and the right spot, mm -hmm. otherwise send it back. Um, <laughs> so for these letters that you, the senators and people in Congress will have their colleagues sign on to, it has to be formatted just right. So like if you have one letter or one spelling, you have to like start all over. And because these letters are being ran around Congress by interns getting their signatures, if someone catches something wrong and you have to start all over, you get in a lot of trouble. I only got in a little bit of trouble because I spelled Senator Booker's first name wrong, but we caught it really fast. But uh, long story long, when they were doing that vote late, late that night, and all the senator staff, Senator Gillibrand's staff was there in the office, I got to see on C-SPAN Senator Gillibrand literally walking around the letter that I had, getting mm -hmm. other, her colleagues to sign on to this letter. And you, I mean, this is available online. I've pulled it up multiple times for presentations and stuff. And there are people who signed onto the letter, like in the margins, like wrote their names, which is something that is totally unheard of. But she was literally walking around to Democratic and Republican senators, so, like explaining this issue and getting people to sign onto this letter that I got to write. Like it wasn't so much that I got to write it, but it was seeing like something that I got to participate in and how she was able to utilize her relationships to really get support around this issue. And I don't remember the number right now, but it was close to 50, like high 40s for the number of senators that she got to sign on to that letter. And this was all happening before the thumbs down. It was a very <laughs> a special evening. Wow, that's incredible. You've had an impact on a number of things, but I think what's hitting me most sharply is that you speak so passionately about the policy work that you've done and it sounds like it's informed and fueled maybe even some of your military career and the work that you do in the Navy. Definitely. I think that all things, for one reason or another, become or are connected. Mm -hmm. So it directly connects to some of the work that I've done in the Navy thus far. So that fellowship ended in 2017, and then I commissioned in June of 2019, so not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, the way that, I'm going to tangent again for a second, the way <laughs> that the direct accession kind of process is set up right now, at least for the Navy, is that once you make it through the application process and you do the direct accession program, they call it, 
you do come in, they are focused on setting up your first tour at one of the MTFs. And that's specifically so that you can learn the military specific side of everything. I mean, there's no, like, that was just too long to even get into. Um, <laughs> but learn about disposition, learn about how the system works, learn how to wear your boots, which is something I still struggle with. <laughs> And for those that don't know what an MTF is, it's a military treatment facility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And they want you to be at one of the, the larger facilities so that you have more peers and support to learn from while you're getting, while you're, while you're acculturating and learning the system, truly. Mm -hmm. So I came to Naval Medical Center San Diego and my first year, at least everybody, everybody I know has told me like, your first year has not been like the traditional first year direct session. So mine's not the model by any means, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. I think the intent was there. So I came and I was here for about four months, rotating around the, a couple of clinical placements, just learning how Balboa, the hospital specifically worked. And then this opportunity, quote unquote, arose and they needed to send somebody to one of the aircraft carriers that was out, out and about, let's put it that way. And uh, they, my department head, who is fantastic. She's actually on that aircraft carrier now. She's their psychologist. She called me and asked me a series of three questions. She explained the situation and said they were sending, they needed to send someone. The three questions, if I can rem remember them correctly, were, is there anything that you have for the next three to six months, I don't remember what the time frame was, that you couldn't be away from? Like, I think the spirit of the question was, is there family or obligation or a, a wedding or anything like that mm -hmm. coming up that you couldn't be away from? And then the second one was, oh, I don't remember it so much, but I want to say the spirit of that question was, are you comfortable with the idea of taking this opportunity? And mm -hmm. the third one was, was, will you take the opportunity? Oh, wow. That happened quick. <laughs> it was really quick. It was a noon phone call. And I was with one of the junior sailors helping her get set up for the directorate's Christmas party. So we were at the park getting a permit because you never know what you're going to do as a military <laughs> psychologist. A fun day. And I will say, even as I described this to you two, like it was a really, really supportive and intentional and thoughtful way of asking me, I mean, of mm -hmm. approaching it, like I think as a leader, the department had for somebody to take on this opportunity and deploy. I will admit, I didn't think no was an option. <laughs> um, so I said yes. And truly, like there wasn't anything that was preventing me from going or that would, that would be disrupted by doing so in a major way. I was comfortable and I could. So this happened the beginning of November of 2019, and myself and a team of four others, two psychologists and three behavioral health technicians enlisted folks who are specially trained in behavioral health flew out to meet this ship. And we spent three, the majority of three months at sea and provided additional support to the crew. And it was a really phenomenal experience. I will say people kept saying, oh, it's like you're doing a rotation on postdoc, but we know you're not a postdoc. You already did that. <laughs> I'm just so, I'm so struck by the fact that you went from working on policy in a senator's office to working in a hospital in San Diego yeah. with what I imagine to be clinical mental health problems, if not doing health psychology in a clinical setting. What was that transition like? 
So there were two small steps in between because I was still in DC, I think for mm -hmm. another year in between mm -hmm. or when was that? A year and a half, right? Like that was how, right? Yeah. I'm talking to myself yeah. now. <laughs> Based on your story, that adds yeah. up. Yeah, about an, a year and a half before your commission. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had two gigs during that time, and one was at the Suicide Care Prevention and Research Initiative. Keen, mm -hmm. if I have mm -hmm. that right? I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. CPR, I'll always remember that, working mm -hmm. with Dr. Marjan Holloway in the lab, and that was a really great mm -hmm. experience. I was with them for six months dabbling a bit in her research portfolio on suicide with active duty military personnel. That came to an end. And then I actually had a little bit of a break before my next gig. And I ended up at the Defense Health Agency's Psychological Health Center of Excellence working as a SME or a, a subject matter expert. And I don't say that to brag because I totally had to Google it. Like when I read the job explanation or job advertisement, I was like, what is this? <laughs> But specifically working on uh, clinical psychologist, quote unquote, me working in, I don't remember all the branches in the, of the tree, but it, it was a tree kind of setup or organization of the organization. And I was in the clinical care branch and the evidence-based practice leaf or whatever it was, yeah. but specifically pulling on all of the relevant research, both within and outside of the DOD, to inform clinical support tools for practitioners and members of the military, as well as getting to do a little bit of work specifically around the around transgender research at that time um, within the DOD and some other like very like niche areas. I don't say this to be completely silly, but like I always told people, I was like, I am a psychologist who makes PowerPoints for a living. And I wasn't mad at it because it was, it was like a nerdy period of time. And I got to like get a little more ingrained and learn more about the DOD from the DHA, which I don't know if I would agree with that language today. But at that point, that's how it felt. Right. Well, that seems like a that seems like a pretty big deal. I mean, the Center for Excellence and Psychological Center for Excellence and, and the DHA, I mean, mm -hmm. those are huge, you know, forces in what I understand in military psychology. Keen, what are your, what's your awareness to those organizations? Any thoughts that come to mind about that? Like Nick was saying, those agencies essentially dictate, you know, how clinicians kind of practice. And, right. and you kind of mentioned how, you know, the branch that you're working on was uh, evidence-based practice. And those are the information that as clinicians will receive from DHA and Center of Excellence, PHCOE, and use those materials to kind of guide our practice. So, so you might think you're just a psychologist creating PowerPoint and helping out on that front. But to us, you're helping us to kind of inform our practice. I don't know if you know that, Nick. Well, I appreciate that because I have been like an advocate for the PHCOE ever since I did commission. And I was like, we have all these resources. I helped right. make them. We should use right. them. Right, right, Yeah. And it's both formal, like a part of the uh, clinical practice guideline, CPGs, and also informal. You know, people write blogs and, and posts like that that you can just read on a leisurely basis and just kind of further your own, your own education. And, and I think that, that that speaks to the... I'm not sure if this is the right word to say it, the diversity in terms of how advocacy can look like. And I guess this is a good segue in talking about like, I guess in, in your own words, you know, Nick, like how would you define advocacy and how you've been able to kind of advocate for things and change as a military psychologist? Because we have learned a whole bunch about your work 
you know, as a civilian in the transition period when you direct commission as an officer working with the uh, senators. But currently, you know, how, how do you apply the things you learn with your new identity, you know, new-ish identity as a military psychologist in the Navy? Absolutely. No, I think it's a perfect segue because it is very different. Like mm-hmm. it's very different being uniformed oh versus yeah. being well, yeah. Yeah. Being Absolutely. a civilian. And that's why I really emphasize I was a civilian back then. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think this is what I was thinking about our talk today, our chat today. Yeah. Thinking about the definition of advocacy is kind of where my mind kept going back to mm-hmm. because I don't have any sort of like pre-thought out language for it whatsoever. And I think that people oftentimes, at least in my experience, get can get, I don't say will get, but can get really held up on the identity of being an advocate or take that label and place that upon themselves and use that to draw attention to both themselves and or their issue. But like really they like they they take that on without the, I think, thinking of the nuance of advocacy. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think advocacy can come across you can approach advocacy in almost any any way, really. And being a uniformed psychologist who's engaged in advocacy at this point does has I think has brought some light to that for me, or shed some light to that for me. Mm-hmm. So I think the go-to kind of picture or image is the person who is posting the most about whatever issue, or involved the most on whatever issue, or wears the T-shirt the most. Like, right? However, they can like draw attention to it. But I don't think drawing public attention is the only way. It is a way. It is definitely a model of advocacy, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's the only way. And that is something, again, being uniformed, I've gotten more experience and exposure to. So I think that the way that advocacy comes or is present in my life as a uniformed psychologist at this point is in a few different ways. So I'm going to share some examples to hopefully highlight that. One of them to kind of draw back to connect to many of the topics we've talked about so far is in my current role. So I'm PCSing. I'm about to do a military move from one command to another in like 12 days. Wow. But uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't want to see what the rest of the, my house looks like <laughs> right now. Um, one of the role, the leadership roles that I was fortunate enough to be able to take on, and I, I will say I had to advocate for it, was to be one of the co-chairs for the transgender clinical team for Naval Medical Forces Pacific. So the way that that committee or team is situated is it's the it's an interdisciplinary team of uh, providers and other supports Naval Medical Center San Diego just happens to be housed there and they kind of oversee the coordination of care for transgender sailors and marines across the western half of the world so it's not direct patient care because these patients sailors and marines are at commands all over half the globe mm-hmm. So I'll start with my personal advocacy piece. So the position of co-chair was originally written to be a, an O5 officer or commander in the Navy, and I'm an O3, a lieutenant. And so when the opportunity came up, it was presented as, do you want to join the committee? But I was then, I met with the committee chair who was rotating off, and she said, well, you have more experience in this area than anybody on the committee. And so I was able to lean on my experience, not that they didn't all have tons and tons of experience, but I had just spent like a a larger amount of time working on this issue from a different perspective. So she was able to 
well, I will say, use her authority and her position to help me advocate that my experience, I was able to say, like, I have the experience here and get selected for that, for that position. And it, it wasn't just an email or a phone call. It was a very long process, but it ultimately got approved. And that's like more the personal side of things of like really sticking to the fact that like, I think that I have the skill set, knowledge and experience to do this work which is meaningful regardless, but to do it in a meaningful way and supported based on my experiences. Now, the role that advocacy takes on in that committee or role, I think is how we as a committee or team are advocating for our patients under the, what I believe is, I have not been in the office for two weeks, so I don't know what if the policy, the new policy has come out or not. I've been working from home. I haven't been on vacation. Uh, but the previous policy related to transgender individuals serving in the military had some limitations around it in, in regards to accessing care and the very specific pathways that are available to service members. And so we as a committee... We're really there to advocate with commands who either were confused or questioning or even pushing back on the policy because it is a nuanced, I mean, it's a nuanced instruction and it's a nuanced topic that people feel uncomfortable or uninformed about. And so we did direct command consultation and education around that for our patients. Mm -hmm. We also did that with our patients to teach them how to do it for themselves when appropriate. So really advocating for the needs of the patients to make sure they had access to gender affirming care. Mm -hmm. I want to say regardless, of course, there's some spots, there's some places in the world where certain care is not available, but to the best of the ability for what the system could provide. Right. So that was very much on behalf of the patients. We held a meeting once a month, and then we had these communications in between. It was a collateral duty. So that was a form of advocacy that wasn't out there in the public. It wasn't out there like right on the front page. It wasn't something I was posting on social media about because that would be inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But um, it was one role of doing advocacy on behalf of patients and communities that really wasn't that way that we see, I think, so often with like Facebook stickers and Instagram, right? Like it's not all about how much you shine a light on things. There are other ways of engaging in advocacy across different areas and levels and approaches that really help move the work forward. If I had a kind of theme or message in my life right now across like multiple areas of, of work and volunteering that I do. It's like my focus is always on moving the work forward. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily about me attaching my name to the work or me mm -hmm. getting credit for the work. It's about moving the work forward for best for whatever the cause, individual, or patient, or whatever category we're focused on at that time. I just want to interrupt here. First and foremost, I just want to say that it is phenomenal that that committee exists. I think that's very important and very cool that the Navy is doing that. And in the efforts of moving things forward, we need more committees like that. And additionally, I just I think I want to highlight that that committee, its existence as well as committees similar to it, that's evidence of a really neat opportunity as a psychologist in the military that you can sort of have your hand in multiple things and play an advocacy role on top of what I imagine you're doing is also carrying a caseload of patients and mm -hmm. doing many other things that psychologists do within your command. So for those listening that maybe aren't familiar with what it's like to be a military psychologist, it's unique in that there are endless opportunities and things that 
for Nick's situation very much met his interests. And sometimes things that don't always meet your interests as a psychologist, but you know, the command is looking for subject matter expert on the matter and they need a psychologist and you know, they're looking for somebody to join the team. So at least I know in the Air Force that happens a lot too. You know, hey, we're looking for a psychologist to come and, and weigh in on this topic and share your expertise. So it's a really neat place to really be an advocate and try to have an impact on policy. And in a lot of these situations, it sounds like, Nick, influence the thoughts and the ideologies of commanders, which isn't something civilians do. Absolutely. I will say this is... So I I think <laughs> I still struggle in understanding and translating DOD instruction. I'm like, it's very hard for me. It's tough. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, oh, can someone just tell me what that means? Like, I don't... <laughs> I don't even know how to read these orders I'm about to execute. Like I'm, yeah, I'm not no. there yet if I ever get there. But I will say, I think one of the other like perspectives on this kind of example specifically is it's using the policy that is in place as an advocacy tool for all of these patients. Mm-hmm. Like regardless of the ideologies, Ethan, as you'd said, like of the leaders or the confusion or lack of education, right? Like it, sometimes people just don't know. But like using this as a tool of like, this is, what this is how this works this is who we are we're here to kind of quote unquote make sure this works for the best outcome for the patient and then just keep it moving forward Mm -hmm. i also want to highlight a couple of things too one is your role as a psychologist on that committee and how our training as psychologists being well-rounded being able to do assessment and how that is different than other professions I don't know, you know, nurses have a very different training versus physicians versus dentists or any healthcare professions that, that you work on on that committee and, and that uniqueness of your background, in addition to the training that you received with research and program implementation and translating research into policies, how that is adding so much value to the committee that I think, you know, we don't talk more enough. So that's first thing. And as a uh, continuation of that point is my impression and this is, you know, my own personal bias, I guess, that I don't see a lot of uh, psychologists being a part of, or I should say they don't see themselves being an advocate or don't play an active role as an advocate. So uh, mm. for, for example, and this is my bias, again, like I said, you know, a stereotype that I think I have about our profession. I become a, a psychologist. I should say I get a degree in psychology. Then I become a therapist and I work at a private practice. I see patients and that's it. Or I be a psychologist. I get attached to a, a research lab and that's all I do. But in your experience, that hasn't been the case since clear, you know, when you're at Palo Alto, we've been doing that the entire time. Again, like I said, this is my experience. I wonder if uh, you both have a different kind of opinion and how psychologists yeah. play a role as an advocate. Well, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that comes to my mind as I hear you say that is is just I think a lot of people working in private practice or a lot of time working in some even larger agencies, just they stay within their lane. The system or their position isn't necessarily set up to advocate even for their patients, right? Like spend the hour with their patient or whatever it is, and then that person goes away and then they see somebody else. But in our case in the DOD, at least in my experience thus far, when a patient comes in and, and they're having a unique problem or you know it, it's impacting their job in a certain way, their mental health condition or something that they're struggling with, or you know, say for example, they just have like something going on in their family, right? Like we have the ability working within this system where we can actually reach out to their command and we can get support for them or advocate for 
you know, something to change within the workplace. And I think it's just, it's really unique working in the DOD because you can have an impact on the person that you see clinically. It just said it with the larger scope. A lot of what Nick has been talking about has been sharing a really large impact, right? And I think I'm reflecting now on just like small impacts that we can make and small ways that we can advocate for even single patients. And I think that extrapolates as a psychologist. You know, you might see somebody, let's say multiple people from the same unit or, you know, multiple people from the same command, and you might have an itch about that and be like, what's going on over there? You know, and there might be ways where you can start to see what kind of advocacy there is to be done to support the health and well-being of that particular group. So I don't know, those are just some of my thoughts. It's exciting to be having this conversation because I think it's a unique thing that military psychologists get to do. We work in a system that really supports us being advocates. And it is at a lot of times our choice to do so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I totally, Ethan, I agree. I mean, I agree with everything both of you said, but it is extremely unique based on the impact you can have on the service members that you're working with because of the the context and the ability to consult with commands and really get a little bit more. The boundaries are a little bit different. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the fact of it. The boundaries are a little bit different and not necessarily in a negative way. One of the examples that came to mind as you were talking about that is I just finished up my position as the division officer at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot here in San Diego. So one of the two training commands for Marine recruits, and we as the mental health unit handled the the recruit duty, the mental health duty. So yeah, that sounds point, like a cool position, by the way. <laughs> That's awesome. I think because I said yes to those deployment questions that this was given to me, I didn't know we were negotiating, <laughs> but the department head knew what she was doing, obviously. It was, a, it was a really great experience. I was there for until I took these new orders. But, you know, we would do walk-in evaluations for recruits who needed acute psychiatric evaluations. And although those evaluations were very specific, we were able to consult with commands and different levels of leadership across those recruit training commands if we did see themes or trends or, mm-hmm. uh, right, because things are going on, COVID's going on, like mm-hmm. we can't expect recruits to be operating the same way. We can't accept real instructors to be operating the same way. Mm-hmm. We still have the same expectations around appropriate care and dignity, but being that voice and having that insight, and I think it, it's very unique in that way. And the parallel, I think, for civilian psychologists who might be in private practice is, although you may not be gaining, like, right, you may not have a huge body of research if you're a private practice person that's not engaged in research, where research can inform the discussion, the dialogue, the policy. I think that psychologists still have so much expertise and are gathering, like, they have their thumb on a little bit more of the human experience and other types of providers, and they can bring that into the conversation. I think that not here necessarily, but like more large picture, we get stuck on you're only an advocate, you're only engaged in advocacy if you're making the biggest splash. Mm-hmm. But if you are engaged in informing the conversation, guiding the conversation at whatever level, if that's like local, if that's at your kid's school, if that's in your community, I live in an HOA, if that's at your HOA board, <laughs> like you are bringing in different perspectives into those things and you can advocate in one way or another on different issues. That part's not clinical specifically, yeah. but you mm-hmm. know, sometimes people in the HOA like to ask us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to... I'm going to flip the conversation on its head a little bit in terms of also serving in a role as an advocate for the organization, for the system. And 
Nick, I imagine in the, in the basic recruits going through training environment, there are many times in which people have mental health problems that aren't a good fit for the military. And a lot of the times, maybe we need to advocate that somebody not stay in the military or somebody needs to find themselves in a different career field because it doesn't necessarily align with you know the best practice of that unit or of the service. And sometimes we have policy that we're using to guide those recommendations. But, you know, it also goes the other way around. You know, sometimes what's best for the patient is that they're not in the military and we need to inform command about why that is and what is best for the branch of service, that unit specifically or for the patient. So it kind of goes both ways. Absolutely. Right. The patient the patient's safety and their well-being is like, I think, as psychologists, like our primary focus. But as a uniformed psychologist, we're also thinking about the system and if this is a good fit. And that's not necessarily say like someone shouldn't be here because we don't want them here. Mm -hmm. But long term, it's not going to be a good fit or have a good impact on them. Mm -hmm. So I think it is still patient-centered in that way. People Mm -hmm. won't always receive it that way. Right. (laughs) But um I think there's a lot of advocacy like within the system, again, at multiple levels, just like the examples we just went through. Mm-hmm. One of the, if I may put out another example, is just psychology specific, not clinically directed, but like I learned so much about military psychology and advocacy through APA's Division 19. So through the Society of Military Psychology, which is why we're all here today, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was in the Division 19 Society Leadership Program's first cohort, which I want to say was three years ago, but obviously I'm bad mm-hmm. with years. Yeah, Everyone's learned yep. at this point. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, looking back, I have like tons and tons of like positive things to say about it. And it was a positive experience during it as well. I'm sorry, I, I set that up poorly but it was a it was a great experience and i'm just going to talk a little bit about my capstone project because you're required to do a capstone as part of that because it ties some pieces together i think Mm -hmm. so i specifically wanted to bring it back to the area i had been working on and that was open service for transgender americans Mm -hmm. and both division 19 and division 44 which is the society for the psychology of sexual orientation and gender diversity had independently put out public policy statements supporting open service. And I'd been involved in Division 44's development because I was on their public policy committee back in the day. So I was the co-chair, so I was very hands-on with that one, uh, but I was aware and familiar with Division 19. So I proposed a capstone project that focused on building some sort of advocacy collaboration amongst the two divisions in order to see what was possible and how we could bring them together. The two divisions, to my knowledge, not not a lot of overlap. There is overlap, but the work and the focus of the divisions, I had not been aware of any. Mm-hmm. Again, those policy statements were independent of one another. And so working through the Capstone Project, we looked at lots and lots of different areas. One of the things, I think one of my favorite parts of it was I actually discovered APA had funded a task force between the two divisions back under, I don't remember what year it was, but it was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And it was kind of similar to the assumptions and biases that I was holding about, like, there's no overlap between these divisions, even though we know there's overlap between these Mm -hmm. divisions. And so APA had funded this task force, and it was leaders from each division who came together in D.C., where where headquarters for APA is, 
and APA staff and said, how can we make this work? Because the two were opposed, allegedly, around don't ask, don't tell. And any organization that did not, that openly supported Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I believe if I have this correctly, was not permitted to advertise within APA publications. So the ramifications of that position was that none of the military internship programs could be advertised within the American Psychological Association publication. So that's not super great for any of the services, for any of the training programs, for anybody. I did a handful of informational interviews, and one of them, I'll never forget because the individual I spoke with said, this part's on the record and this part's off the record, and I kind of always forget which part was which, so I'll be brief about what I talk about. I have notes. I have notes. Um, But uh, the thing that stood out the most was they said within like the first 30 minutes, I think that's even longer than the, the individual had stated, they were able to find common ground in one of the most meaningful ways because one of the leaders from Division 19, as they were trying to like do icebreaker, right? Like, how are we going to get these groups talking to one another? Shared like a loved one, a brother or something like this was a part of the LGBTQ community and spoke to how much they supported that person and loved that person and their identities and their life and their family. And I think the people from Division 44 who's, who this interview was with spoke to the fact that like they just never thought that they had allies in Division mm-hmm. 19. Mm-hmm. And they uh, it said it immediately broke the ice and they were able to come together. And this is available on APA's website. And I think it might be on Division 18's too. But there is a report of all the collaboration the two divisions did for a two-year period, mm-hmm. including like huge things that can our annual convention and reports and papers and research mm-hmm. collaborations. That so was really eye-opening for me to learn that uniform psychologists and leaders within Division 19, some of which at the time were uniformed, could participate so actively in advocacy, supporting certain issues, just not in the sense that they can't be the spokespeople for it. Mm-hmm. What people, the beliefs and things that people engage in and support are up to them. That freedom isn't taken away just because you put on the uniform. And I think, I mean, I don't even want to generalize and say that I think other people think that. I'll say that like I was really confused and concerned about that. Mm-hmm. I, um, I work, I'm on the board of directors for a national nonprofit organization for focused on LGBTQ healthcare. And I will rotate into the, I'm the president elect right now. I'll become the president in September. But when they approached me and asked me to run, I said, well, I don't even know if I can, I got to look into this more. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I had lots of conversations with leaders within the Navy and Navy psychology and Division 19 specifically. And everybody was like, yeah, there's absolutely no problem with that. You have to, of course, be mindful and thoughtful about what you state publicly mm-hmm. and put out publicly because you are a representative of your service. But that doesn't negate your ability to engage in things that are personally meaningful to you and take on those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I think one of the reasons of us asking you today to speak to us is just to to highlight that you know that you can be a military psychologist and a uniform psychologist and still continue to advocate if you the things that you have done before you know it's just uh, heavily focused on uh, advocacy and on the other thing is if you haven't thought about advocacy and you're a psychologist you know 
how can you think about, you know, uh, doing advocacy work uh, in your own world, whether it's as small as, like you said, you know, wearing a t-shirt saying that, hey, X, Y, and Z, this is what you need to do. And, uh, or becoming a psychologist that create PowerPoints for other people so other people can learn or uh, translating policy or just being a part of committees like, like what you have done, promoting change or advocating on behalf of, you know, the patients or in uh, Ethan's example, advocating for the system. So it's beneficial for both the patients and also the system. And I think, you know, if today's conversation can jumpstart that, I don't know, motivation or, or that desire to be a part of that work, you know, I think uh, we have accomplished you know, a whole bunch. So, yeah. And I think I personally struggle with that too. And Ethan and I kind of talked about our role as uh, both in, in our triple role as a graduate student, people wearing uniform, you know, service members, and also a part of a Division 19. And how do we kind of balance all those different roles in terms of advocating for ourselves and not creating conflict? And, and Ethan, you were trying to say something? I mean, I, yeah, I agree with all of that. I was just going to jump in and ask Nick sort of a more of a leading toward a close question, but just kind of want to ask if you had any words of wisdom for students who were interested in pursuing policy and advocacy work, whether it's within the DOD or, or not, specifically on the issues that you focused on or military-specific policy work. If students were listening and you were able to communicate something to them, what, what would you highlight? What would you encourage them to do to get into this? I think there's tons of opportunity. Similar to what the three of us discussed earlier, like there's opportunity at different level, at different levels across the board. It's all about how you think about it. One of the things specifically for graduate students in psychology, regardless of what field of psychology, I'm going to put a plug for another division that's not 19 or 44. Um, <laughs> we'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I meant to say this much earlier on. Most of the advocacy and translational research that really focuses on policy and advocacy and translating research into policy comes out of social psychology. And the exposure that I got to social psychology beyond graduate school and beyond reading was when I was a congressional fellow. So Division 9 is the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. It's called SPICI. It's a standalone organization. I think it's much more, it is a division of APA, but it is also its own organization, like with its own staff and budget. It's a mm -hmm. really, really, really wonderful division. I love them. And they have tons of opportunities to get like more involved at the graduate student level, including internships and fellowships and, and to inform like research and community engagement, advocacy, like they really do it. Policy is one of their pillars. Like that's really a foundation of that organization. Mm -hmm. And that is, the, I, would, I would describe it as a quote unquote social psychology or one of the social psychology divisions. But they're very, very open. I'm a member of SPICI. The staff is all wonderful. So for the more formal opportunities going through there, I think that they have the internship. I think each of the other divisions, including 19, offers opportunities to get involved across different areas. I mean, I don't think that Division 19, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, has a like a freestanding policy committee or public policy committee. But I've been consulted on public policy statements and stuff like that, just asked informally for input or review. And that that's something that what I've learned in my six years or so since graduating is that if you are willing to do the work, 
there's always going to be an organization or system that's willing to let you. Mm -hmm. They may have parameters around what that looks like or what that what's permitted. But if you're willing to really dedicate that labor and that time, they're going to be willing to let you to do so. So if you have an idea and you want to bring it up through Division 19, such as the student committee or even to the larger XCOM, I've found the leadership in Division 19 to be largely supportive of just about everything that I've, I've discussed with them. Mm-hmm. I um I think there's also a lot of opportunity to get and get and get involved at the local level. Um, when I was living in D.C., I served on the D.C. Mayor's Committee for LGBTQ issues. So that was really just focused on local issues within D.C., which was kind of cool because it was a model that's looked at by other cities and areas. But the more like I remember when I learned the term me search, right? Like people find people like some people lean into research areas that they connect with, not because it's about them or their identity per se, but an area that is personally meaningful and they feel connected to. So I think if you continue to engage in work, regardless of what that type of work is that is personally meaningful and you feel connected to, you will find those opportunities to advocate across those different areas. Yeah. I'll be remiss if we didn't focus on this specific thing that we kind of talked about, talked around, but not directly addressed, is that you don't have to wear the uniform to advocate, that you don't have to be a part of uh, uniform services to be a part of military psychology. You can be civilians and advocate for service members and for policy changes for, for the greater community. And what you just said, all that, you know, you don't have to be directly associated with uh, any military organization and you can be a part of Division 9 or Division 44 or Division 19 or Division whatever. So for listeners that's been listening this far, if we haven't made that clear, you know, this is the point where we made it clear that it doesn't matter where you, whether you're wearing it, you know, the uniform or whether you're a civilian, you can do advocacy work in your own world, uh, in your own capacity. And also you don't have to be a clinician. Mm-hmm. I, I think Nick has highlighted many times today about how the research behind these policies is really the driver to changing policy and making making edits and adjustments and recommendations. So, you know, for those not looking to pick up clinical roles or for those specifically maybe wanting just to do research within the DOD, I mean, there, mm-hmm. there are opportunities for that. Right. There's... You know, Nick, I liked your comment. Uh, There's always work to be done, basically, right? There's always research to be done. And we're constantly living in a complex, ever-changing world. So we need people to be studying, tracking, analyzing what is happening with people, with systems, with policy even. So there's, there's lots of research always to be conducted. So for those listening that are researchers and specifically focused on that, there's a lot of ways to make an impact in this arena. Yeah. So buy a t-shirt, support the uh, LGBTQ <laughs> uh, community and uh, transgender service members and says, hey, you know, this is what we do. <laughs> I will share. I actually came across an organization I'd never even heard of before. I'm attending a webinar of theirs, I think, in four hours now that I just remembered that. Uh, but they, uh, it was uh, supporting transgender youth. And I bought a t-shirt yesterday because even those yeah. dollars went directly towards the organization. But yeah, there's a way to advocate for anything in across a variety of areas. It's not just the loudest voice or the biggest flashlight or, right? Like we often have so many obligations in our life. We don't even have time to donate labor and time, but there's a way and it doesn't always have to be today. Like, right? Like there will be opportunities throughout our lifetime to advocate for issues that are important to us. 
Nick, was there something that you wanted to share with us today that you haven't gotten a chance to yet? I don't think so. We covered so much. I made a list, but then I drew all over it. I won't show you guys that and the listeners can't see it, but I think we covered a lot and I really enjoyed this opportunity. So thank you so much for inviting me to to hang out with you two today. It's been fun. Add it to the things you do as a psychologist on a Saturday. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Hey, what's next for you? I will be uh, PCSing again in 12 days to um, Hawaii. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I am backfilling. Yes. I'm backfilling an individual who got selected for a fellowship and is leaving his embedded position a little bit early. So I'm going to work with a group of small boys or smaller ships and be their command psychologist. And I hope I learned what I was supposed to do at the hospital because here we go. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Are you excited? I am definitely looking forward to it. I love San Diego and I've loved my my first command, but I am ex- looking a little bit more to do uh, fleet work. Like I don't want to say real Navy versus fake Navy because people at the hospital are real Navy also, but uh, working with the fleet specifically, I'm, I'm excited to get a little bit more into that adventure. So I do- actually deployed twice during my first year. Um, so I've had the the carrier experience and the hospital ship experience. So now I'm going to work with another set of types of ships, I guess. And you started your, when you started sharing about your military entrance, you said it's, it was non-traditional. And now we really, I can hear that. <laughs> yes, you've done a lot in a year and a half or so, however long you've been in. Yeah. Uh, or I guess, how long has it been? Two years it will, now? It'll be two years on June 1st. Yeah. So in a short amount of time, you have done an incredible amount of work in many settings. And that is exciting. And for listeners that are probably just like, Wow, that seems like a lot. It is a lot. That is awesome. Yeah. And you spent some time on the hospital ship. And that's a whole other story. Definitely. Which is, which is so <laughs> cool and very unique to the Navy. And uh, just a, a, a cool little anecdote there. Um, Am I hearing well, that you want to join the Navy now, Ethan? <laughs> I can't put anything out there in the ether, okay? <laughs> no, I really enjoy uh, working in the Air Force and have found it very rewarding so far. So looking forward to the opportunities that come there. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So headed to Hawaii. Is there a, is there a timestamp on that? Yeah. Uh, 12 days, 12, like literally on the. How long will you be there? Oh, sorry. Uh, I, it's a three-year billet. So I will be out there for three years and we'll see how that goes. I wasn't sure since you were backfilling somebody, if, if that was just a short, uh, another no. quick rotation for you. No, this will be my first full tour. I'll have done less than, so my current tour, three years, I did less than two years, and then I'll be headed out to my real first one, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, uh, excited for you and your next steps and uh, wish you safe travels and the best of luck in your work that you do there. Thank you so much, guys. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a fun hour and a half. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. Pleasure is all mine. Oh yeah. This has been fun. Well, I mean, I think for the listeners, you know, as we wind down here today, one of the reasons we wanted to invite Dr. Grant on was not because necessarily we know him or we like him. Uh, We do. uh, (laughs) But we really want to, you know, send the message to students and others considering military psychology as a career that you can be an advocate for patients and you can be an advocate for populations and you can have a large impact on policy at the national level probably at the global level in the DOD specifically. And 
there are just, as evidenced by Nick's stories and experiences, endless ways to do that. So we would encourage you to get involved with Division 19, Division 9 of the American Psychological Association, other you know nonprofits, committees, all sorts of ways in which you can serve in ways that are important to you. Nick, that you've had uh, quite the niche in some points of your life that you've focused your work on, but everybody's interests and expertise and, and where they want to make an impact can be different. So we encourage you to you know pursue your interests and figure out ways that you can make the impact that you want to make. Nick, uh, pleasure working with you, talking with you today. Really fun to have you on. And we can't wait to hear what your career brings and what other policy and advocacy work you find yourself doing along the way. Yeah. You know, I usually like to end conversations like this just to say to be continued. And we look forward to seeing what comes of you in the in the coming years. I love it. <laughs> Any last words, Keen? No, really appreciate your time, Nick. Spending, like I said, you know, an hour and a half, you know, chatting with us. It was so good learning about your experience and also thinking about the inspiration that you have given to the students and the listeners. I think, you know, uh, really appreciate you doing this for us. So thank you, thank you. Applause, applause, you know, uh, for, for you being with <laughs> us today. Good luck with everything. I know PCS can be stressful. Do take care of yourself and to be continued in, in future conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Okay, take care now. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. We thank you for your time for listening to our episode. We hope this has been beneficial and educational, and we would love to hear from you. Any questions, any suggestions, any feedback, you can send that to our email at div19studentrep at gmail.com. And that is div19studentrep, as in R-E-P, at gmail.com. For more information about our guest speakers and ways to reach out to them, please check our podcast description. And we do have other ways to reach out to us via social media. And Ethan has those information. And Ethan? Yeah, so feel free to engage further with us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter. You can search at Division19 Students to find us on both of those platforms. We thank you for your engagement and listening to our podcast, and we look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.